Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 166. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 166 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Ken Sluter, producer, engineer, mixer, man of many talents and uh, man of many projects. Yeah, he's worked with a lot of people, including uh, The Pretenders, Marshall Crenshaw, Hart, Ron Sexsmith, Veruca Salt. Um, He's also worked closely with uh, producers Wally Gaggle and Zandy Berry on a series of iTunes original sessions for artists that include... uh, the Decemberists, PJ Harvey, Maroon 5. Recently, Ken has worked closely with producer Joe Ciccarelli, mixing records for artists like Morrissey and the Augustines. And he's also worked with uh, film composer Brian Reitzel on several film scores and soundtracks, including uh, Hannibal on NBC, American Gods on Stars, uh, and as well as ads for Nike and Apple. Yeah, so Ken Sluter coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. So recently I had a, a really cool interaction with uh, a person on LinkedIn. It's a young man who was at a recording school in San Jose, and he had a project that he had to complete. And part of that project involved essentially interviewing somebody in the recording world. A side note, he reached out to five individuals, and I was the only one that responded. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But he was interviewing me on Skype, which is just strange when I am in that position. I always want to ask, start asking questions as I do in the podcast. And yet here this person was interviewing me, which is always odd. What came out of it was he, you know, he was asking me to um, describe my world, my day to day, what I do and all the different things that I do to diversify. And, and so I, I was explaining all these things to him and talking about, you know, how it all worked. And he was asking me, he was like, well, how did, how did you get in? how did you get into doing, you know, this or that, or, you know, various details of what I was telling him. And I said, well, you know, really it all boils down to relationships. And he said, yeah, I, I, I kind of figured that, but he was a little overwhelmed. He said, you know, I really don't know anybody, you know, he says, I know only the people in my class and my professor, and that's all the people I know. And, you know, all the people in my class are wanting to do the same thing. And so that sense of competition is there. And, and I said, well, you know, it starts with reaching out beyond your circle of people and, you know, I said, obviously, I am now a connection after we had this, we had this great chat, really great interaction about, uh, you know, propelling your career forward. And we just, I just emphasized to him the importance of those relationships and how you build those relationships and how you have to be somewhat fearless in reaching out to people and being sincere and transparent about what you're plan is, you know, what is your agenda? Why are you calling this person or emailing this person? What value do you bring to the situation? It can't just be a one-sided thing. And, you know, it's obviously for all of us, I think it's a work in progress, but it is interesting, the relationship thing, how you build those bonds and maintain those, those situations over years. You may meet somebody at a NAMM show that you have some things in common with. Obviously you're 
music is the common thing, mostly at NAMM. And, uh, you know, you see those people year after year and eventually, you know, you're in a particular position and they're in a particular position where maybe there's a mutual business interest and, and recording and music interest that can all coincide. And I was trying to explain that to him and I could see from his perspective how overwhelming it could be, you know, I mean, I've been at it for, I don't know, God, 30 years, I'll say, since I arrived in San Francisco in 1988 from New Mexico. But it was it was very interesting. And um, just kind of a, a word on what he was saying. He's, I said, first of all, I was puzzled. I said, well, how did you find me? And he said, LinkedIn. You know, I typed in all these, you know, search parameters and you came up and four other people came up and you're the only person that... Uh, responded. And that struck me in a number of ways, because I think we can get into a place where we have some success and we don't think that we need to respond to people who are coming up or we think it's a waste of our time or, you know, oh, I don't need another assistant or intern or whatever it is. But it is super important to take the time to shed light on, to provide information uh, on the world we operate in to the younger generation coming up because they have no idea. And think about how if you have some success in your life, how you came up and those that really schooled you. You can't get in such a bubble that you ignore these folks who are reaching out and seeking that advice. And, you know, you don't have to necessarily take them on as an intern or an assistant, but you can provide some guidance and be willing to mentor them. You can mentor remotely, you know, you can get on Skype, you know, once a month and maybe meet with them and say, hey, you know, uh, what's going on? What can I, any questions I can answer, any guidance I can provide? I think that's the right thing to do. I think it's a good thing to do. And, you know, we want to fill our industry uh, with smart, good people, right? So this is kind of the way to do that because those younger folks are going to come up and if they have a, a lineage of mentorship, whether it's, you know, in-person mentorship or remote mentorship, something like that. And I think it, uh, it only benefits all of us in the long run. So think about it, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but at the same time, think about it, consider it. If there's somebody that's reached out to you that maybe you've blown off an email or, or um, some kind of, you know, whether Facebook message or whatever it is, you know, consider reaching back out and saying, Hey, you know, I got 30 minutes on this day. You know, do you want to meet on Skype? You don't even have to go out and have a cup of coffee with them if, if you don't want to do that. You know, that's the beauty of the 21st century, right? We can just meet with them virtually, which is really great. So that's the rant for today. I want to remind you to head on over to gearslits.com and check out the subforum Audio Life. Working Class Audio sponsors it. And if you like the discussions we have here, you'll enjoy some of those discussions there as well. Same topics, same kind of concepts. Yeah, check it out, gearsluts.com. Also want to remind you, uh, before we get into our interview with Ken, head on over to Universal Audio and check out all the things that they have going on there. There's a new release recently. Uh, there is some great videos by our friends Vance Powell and uh, Jakir King. And, uh, of course, there is the uh, UA promotion going on for uh, getting a free satellite if you buy an Apollo. And that, of course, continues to run on. And uh, that's at universalaudio.com. So do that. That's it. Uh, let's get into it with our friend Ken Sluter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. We'll jump right in. You grew up in a small town called Wilmington, Illinois. That's true. How far is that outside of Chicago? That's about an hour outside of Chicago. In general, uh -huh. the way Illinois is structured, I would say that I-80, Interstate 80, is about 
half hour south of Chicago, and anywhere south of I-80 is the south. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's sort of like the south without any of the interesting culture of the south. I mean, I had a very pleasant upbringing, but it was a small rural town. You know, once I got my license, I had access to Chicago, which definitely informed a lot of my taste in music. It was nice to have access to, you know, a world-class city within driving distance. Did you find growing up that your tastes and exposure were somewhat mainstream versus what you ultimately ended up discovering when you would go into Chicago? That's true. In a small rural town, we were big on, you know, a lot of Bob Seger, a lot of ACD, DC, a lot of, uh, you know, what we kind of call classic rock now. But, you know, it's, I love all that stuff, actually. I, I still, you know, love it. The one thing that I had going for me is, you know, my parents took me down to the little music store in town and I started taking guitar lessons for this guy that turned me on to the Pretenders, Talking Heads, Roxy Music. You know, just this guy had uh, great taste in music. He was really into synthesizers. And so he bought like an Oberheim OB8 and he gave me a Korg MS-20, <laughs> which is sort of my first piece of gear with knobs on it. And and I realized I could kind of make sounds like Gary Newman. And AM radio was a big thing for me, I would say, as far as like if I was going to pick all the bands that I love and was influenced by, I could name all these bands. But AM radio was a big deal. And I think that that might have informed my musical sensibilities almost more than any one particular band. Just because you could get AM radio out in a rural area? Yeah. You know, FM wasn't happening in the 70s. There was WLS, uh, Top 40 Radio, and, and WLS everywhere in the Midwest, from Kansas to Wisconsin and Minnesota, you could pick up WLS. And it was, you know, Top 40 Radio and, you know, just... Lots of memories of driving in the car with my folks listening to Band on the Run and Rufus and Shaka Khan and, you know, the Bee Gees. And, uh, you know, the the one interesting thing about like mainstream music is it's it's curated on your behalf. In other words, if you were going to be on AM radio in the 70s, you had to be good, you know. I'm not I'm not talking about my favorite Captain and Tennille song, you know what I mean? That that might not be like what my taste in music is and we can all listen to that and say, you know, that's that's corny, but as far as a craft, as far as the way it's crafted as a pop hit, that stuff right. is undeniable, you know what I mean? And tons of stuff in the 70s was, you know, all the Richard Perry productions, Carly Simon, James Taylor, the, you know, Lenny Warrenker stuff, the stuff that was on the radio, it had to be at a certain level. I hadn't had exposure to the punk rock scene and the indie rock scene, which has a lot of value, but it was also sort of like you're rooting for your friends and some of your friends <laughs> were really good and some of them weren't. And so you would maybe, you know, you could lose your you could lose your sense of of what's of what's good. You know what I mean. And I certainly yeah. uh, allowed myself to have that experience. And and there's value to that experience as well. But you know, when I was a kid, it was all you know, sort of you know, Bob Seger, ACDC, and then you know, I, like I said, I had this guitar teacher who was you know really into stuff that I would never have been exposed to growing up in a small town. It was sort of a flip. yeah, yeah. And then. Um- you graduated in college 1992 and started working on jingles mm-hmm. in the ad industry. Yeah. But that was in the days of tape. So, you know, grease pencils, razor blades, all that kind of stuff. A lot of that. Yeah. If you are working on ads in the early 90s, you're spending a lot of time syncing up a three quarter inch video deck to your multi track machine. So, you know, you had to understand time code, frame rates, how to lock two machines together. And, you know, it wasn't really, you know, we can get more into sort of my little, you know, journey and what I learned along the way. But the one thing about doing jingles is that 
you know, studios were expensive, musicians were expensive, so you had to work fast. You had to be ready to roll. There was a downbeat. You know, 9 a.m., the string quartet's here to record this 30-second Kroger commercial, and we have to be rolling at 9 a.m. So you're there at 7.30 a.m. to make sure that the three-quarter-inch deck syncs to the multi-track and that the the tape machine is striped to time code. Everything had to be done, and everything had to be ready to roll. All the microphones rocking and headphones checked, all that stuff. You know, if you have an expensive jingle singer, that's where I learned, you know, if you have an expensive jingle singer, and to this day, you don't just test the microphone, you get the microphone going, you put on headphones, you sing into the microphone, you, you know, run whatever track that you have into the headphones and make sure that the mix is, you know, pretty close. And, and that's the way you had to do it. Then as I got into indie rock stuff, which we can talk about, it became a little bit more casual, a little bit more like you were still setting up the microphones while the band was loading the gear in and you kind of line checked and sound checked. And that's kind of what they were used to because they're used to playing in bars and they're used to like a bar sound check. So no one ever thought anything of it. And then when I moved to L.A., it was more about the downbeat again and making sure that everything was perfect. And, you know, if you have a celebrity singer that you're working on a record for or they're coming in to do something you don't do mic shootouts you, you know what i mean you, you you put up the best microphone you make sure it sounds great and and you go cuz you know you only have the talent for a certain amount of time has to sound great first take has to sound great has no. to be usable and you know that really speaks to the concept of being very familiar with your gear maybe you don't have a lot of gear but you got to know it well so that you know, like you say, no mic shootout. So if you got two microphones to choose from, just kind of hypothetically speaking, you know, okay, this singer coming in, you, you've you done your research, you know what they sound like. So you're probably going to pick one over the other. That knowledge of equipment and what to do and how it works, its quirks and its faults and its, its, and its benefits as well. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think that this sort of sort of what you're being paid for is, is that you're not going to experiment on, on, on their time. You know what I mean? And it's funny because the farther I get into this and, and you know, hopefully, you know, you have your artists and your clients that are baby bands and bands that are in development. But then, you know, because I live in L.A., you also have your exposure to this sort of, you know, high profile sessions with these artists. And when I was an assistant on records for nationally known bands and stuff, I was surprised with how little shootouts and, and you know, most artists aren't interested in any of that stuff. They show up and they want to work on what they want to work on and you're expected to have it sound great from the moment they walk in. If I was going into a session and there wasn't a guitar tech, I would bring a guitar so I could line check the guitar so when the artist came in, it, I knew it was going to sound good. I knew that I was ready to go. You know, you don't wait for them to dial the sound in. So that's, you know, all, that's just kind of what you're expected to do. And yet, you know, you you had all those three-quarter inch video deck, analog mixed with uh, maybe some MIDI or... I, all these different kinds of things and time code, of course. Then you got a Pro Tools system. You had an early four-track version of Pro Tools, which was, was it Sound Tools then or was it Pro Tools? What I owned was Pro Tools, but I had used Sound Tools a bunch before Pro Tools was really widespread. Mm -hmm. I actually, when I was a senior at Columbia College, in the second half, second semester of my senior year, they picked four people to help put together four Pro Tools rigs as our senior project. And, and that was sort of our elective. And it was, as far as I knew, like the very first four Pro Tools systems that got shipped to Chicago. So this is, you know, Mac, two CIs, new bus cards. It was a system accelerator was what they called the the new bus card plugged into 
a Pro Tools 442, which is a four-channel right. in and out, interface in and out. And I think that Pro Tools itself could do like 16 voices, you know, 16 tracks, but it was four ins and four outs. So you could get six, up to 16 if you bought more interfaces. I mean, the thing was like the size of a frit, like a small fridge, you know, just, just to roll this thing around. And I would get hired to come in and say like an engineer would submix 16 backing vocals to two tracks, bounce it into my Pro Tools rig, and then I would fly it around to the choruses. So I would get a lot of sort of coming in and working with an engineer, flying a bunch of stuff around, printing it onto two more tracks of the tape machine. We didn't really back up our hard drives then. There was no practical way to do that. Also, a fair amount of like fixing erased kick drums and stuff like that. Like, you know, hey, you know, I... I, I went to record and the track sheet wasn't up to date and I accidentally recorded over like the first three bars of the kick drum. Can you go grab the kick drum from somewhere else? You know, sync it up, fly it in and and, and make a repair. And, you know, and a fair amount of what I did was repair work that would get bounced back onto the analog tape. And then, you know, and then that was it. That, that was a, a kind of a golden time in terms of that skill set was so rare. Yeah, yeah. It was tricky because, well, well, two things. It was a little, it, it was a golden era in the sense of no one knew how to do that. And I actually had in, in my jingle world, I had engineers that I was assisting for who started assisting for me because I was fast on the computer. I, I learned how to edit so fast. In fact, that the studio I was working for would tell me like, hey, man, you know, you need to slow down. <laughs> like we're not billing as many hours. And what we ended up negotiating, what we came up with at that time was an analog rate and a digital rate because we were realizing it took about half the time to do the digital work. So we needed to have like a special rate if we were going to open up Pro Tools as opposed to, you know, making music edits and voiceover edits with a razor blade and, and, and a tape. So, you know, so yeah, I was, at, but at one point it was like the studios realized we're not making as much money. We need to charge more. People weren't going down rabbit holes yet. You know what I mean? So there was a golden era of when it was like, wow, this is actually a more efficient way to do things. It wasn't like, let's try every option now because now we have, you know, at the time we would call it nonlinear editing or random access audio. Right. That's just the normal right. now. But at the time it was sort of a, but then at the same time, there was also uh, the flip side of that was sometimes you'd work on projects and and there wasn't like a, a job of Pro Tools editor or, you know, editor or engineer or whatever. So sometimes I'd work on records that I was not credited for because the credit didn't really exist yet. Or maybe the people didn't want them to think that there was, you know, uh, you know, we don't want them to know that that we edited the drum kit in a in a computer. Right. So, you know, if we put Pro Tools editing by this guy on 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 the uh, credits, that's going to, you know, it's sort of like in the 70s when Rush would say, like, no synthesizers were used on this record. You know what I mean? It was sort of a secret. You did it in secret. A <laughs> little bit of a stigma attached to technology and its use. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I have to say that, like, I mean, early on, once I saw what it could do, you know, what I spent on that Pro Tools rig, and I don't even remember what it was, but it was a lot of money for a kid in his early 20s. You know, I had roommates and was, like, living you know, really bohemian, you know, but I had my flight case with my Pro Tools rig in it. And the interesting thing for me was just the whole concept that I could, you know, go in a studio, work on a multi-track machine, lock up my Pro Tools rig to the machine, print off a couple, you know, we didn't call them stems at the time, but we would like bounce the drums onto a stereo track, bounce the bass onto a mono track and whatever, you know, we do little submixes, and then I could continue doing overdubs and programming and whatever I wanted to at home. You know, so I had some MIDI keyboards and, you know, there was a point in time where I probably, if I would have, if I would have hooked up with the right crew, I might've been one of those like 
keyboard programmer guy. Yeah. Because that was a big part of what brought me into the studio was, uh, you know, I had like a little primitive sequencers at home when I was a kid and was into MIDI and was into, you know, in Chicago, there was wax tracks and like industrial dance music. And I liked a lot of that. I was into ministry and front 242 and a lot of uh, sort of what Nine Inch Nails sort of, you know, uh, brought into the mainstream was sort of like indie, the indie rock of the 80s. Yeah. And uh, and that had appeal to me, you know what I mean? Like, look, no guitars, you know, drum machines, so cool. You know, oh, I want to buy a drum machine. So I'd buy a drum machine and figure out how to sync it up to my Poly 800. And I had a little Insonic Mirage <laughs> and would, you know, stack sounds together. And you got the jump on me on the Pro Tools rig. I think my first Pro Tools rig was like 97 or 98. And I remember it was... So that would have been like a Pro Tools 3? Pro Tools 3, yeah. It was an 888. And it was a 16-bit, yep. 44, 48. And mm -hmm. I remember my dad co-signing a loan to help me get <laughs> yeah, it with... I bet. And, uh, I mean, it was a big deal, like, for my dad to do that. It was, you know, asking a lot. But it was a chunk of dough. Yeah. And I remember, I think I bought a like a Mac 9600, 200 megahertz yeah. type thing. Big tower, yeah. It's funny because at the time there was ADATs and uh, Mackie boards were really kind of bringing... Um, a lot of affordability into pro audio. And I, and I sure. thought, I need to get a rig. Should I buy one of these ADATs and this Mackie board? And I thought, but this Pro Tools thing is so cool. It's got all this stuff inside the computer. You could do all of this. It's like, this could go somewhere. I should probably do that. Well, and you know, the thing about ADATs are, I mean, and you know, ADATs and D88s actually, to my ears, sounded better than ADATs, just had, had a bit of a sound. But with ADATs, it's sort of like all the inconveniences of tape and none of the advantages of digital. <laughs> You know what I mean? You couldn't edit on it. I mean, you could maybe offset some tracks or, you know, you could do some things. And there was, you know, I mean, I knew guys who with multiple ADATs could do a lot of clever submixing and bouncing and flying around doing offsets. Uh, Jay Bennett from Wilco was a big ADAT guy. A lot of Wilco Summer Teeth was ADATs, actually. And it was Jay knew how to, you know, submix a bunch of backing vocals onto two tracks, set an offset to fly it from chorus one into chorus two. And, you know, he was doing things that we just do on Pro Tools or that you would need two 24-track, multi-track machines to do, he was doing on ADATs and, and you know, and doing it pretty well and making it work. And so, you know, that whole era was sort of the idea of I can do overdubs at home or I can do overdubs at my band's rehearsal space because I have this Mackie and this ADAT or, you know, as you said, like a Pro Tools rig. But man, they were really expensive. Yeah, you'd have to do like an Avid lease and it was 36 payments. It was like, it was like a, a an expensive car payment. And, I did uh, a straight up bank loan. Oh, yeah. really? I mean, we we <laughs> bought it outright, and then I just paid the bank back over like three or four years. And then when I paid that off, I wanted to upgrade, so I just took out another, yeah. got another loan because the bank was like, "Okay, cool, yeah. you did that. Let's do another one." Go. Yeah, and then you bought your Mix Plus system yeah. or your HD. I bought my Mix Plus system, and then yeah. my HD and. No, I mean, we did all, you know, when I was partners in the studio, you know, we, we always, you know, we went through about three or four different lease, you know, like leases with $1 buyouts. So they were essentially, you know, uh, bank loans, you know, but it was like through Avid Financial. Yeah. And it's funny, I remember hitting the point where I'm just like, you know what, I'm not going to own a Pro Tool system that I can't buy outright anymore. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, uh, and that was right around the era and I'm jumping around a little bit, but when I moved to LA, most of the big studios didn't have their own, they didn't have pro tools rigs in the room. They had multi-track machines. And so, 
Uh, there's a lot of Pro Tools rental companies in town, or you could rent your Pro Tools to the project. And oftentimes, uh, you'd be making as much money renting your Pro Tools rig as you would be making like as your engineers. Fee. Yeah. <laughs> so it made sense to 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 have one, and then also. You know, when I when I moved to L.A. and again, jumping around a bit at that point, I was so used to having access to a control room at all times that it didn't need to be a proper control room. But I did. But I didn't need to have a working system that I could launch at all times and, you know, and mix, overdub, edit, do whatever. And so, yeah, it made sense to own a Pro Tools rig. And at the time, all you could get was an HD, you know, to get a pro system had to be HD. Well, uh, I want to go back a bit, back to the mid '90s. Uh, you partnered sure. with uh, Dave Trumfio and Mike Hagler uh, of King Size Sound Labs. Uh, yep. You worked. And there was a, a lot of projects went through there. Wilco, Billy Bragg, uh, <sighs> My Morning Jacket, Jesus Lizard, The Sadies, hundreds of other bands. Yeah. Um, I think I met Dave one or two times. He was a very talented guy. I'm curious what you learned. Still is still talented. is talented. Yeah. <laughs> what did you learn from Mike and Dave? Well, you know, it's interesting because in, I mean, the mid-90s in Chicago was was really happening. It felt like a major music market. There was a lot of bands, a lot of record deals, a fair amount of, you know, um, not like stupid, uh, like major label money, but, you know, enough money to have something like having an indie rock studio make, make sense. Yeah. And when I was working in the Jingle Studio, I started working in... Um, and I helped build out a studio called Soundworks, which is now called Rax Tracks, which is actually a really nice studio and it's still doing very well. But I literally helped, you know, build the walls, do the raw framing, pour the concrete, wire up the console. And, and I worked there for years and they were kind of going for a different, a slightly different market than when Dave and Mike were doing. Dave and Mike were coming more from uh, an indie background where... Uh, they they weren't selling the studio. They were selling themselves mm. in a sense. You know what I mean? And and I related to that a lot more. And uh, so much so that when I met them, Dave and his brother had a record deal. And that was what he was focused on. And they needed help because they had so many clients that they had opened up a second room and they needed someone to run the second room. So that's where I met John Langford, who I did maybe 20 records with in the eight or nine years. It, you know, I did a ton of Waco Brothers, Mekons records and Kelly Hogan and all kinds of uh, stuff for Bloodshot records. I walked into that and that's what they did. And the thing with Dave and Mike was... You would come to them for like their aesthetic, and that meant like some production as well. In other words, we weren't, and and I related to this, and I joined in, and I became a part of. Like, you didn't come to us to plug in a microphone and record it direct to tape without any EQ. We were going to EQ it. We were going to wrench on it. We were going to maybe have you play that same guitar part an octave higher and blend that in, and you know, and maybe there might be some harmonies and oohs and ahs on the chorus and. Maybe, you know, uh, if you don't mind, we're going to go do a tambourine on the chorus. You know, we were interested in making it sound as much like a record as possible. If you wanted to sound the way your band sounded in the rehearsal space or at the bar, you know, Steve Albini was the guy to go to for that. No one was going to do it better than Steve. You know what I mean? Like, and what he has to offer bands to this day is a great service, but it's not what we did. We would edit drums. We would fly things around <laughs> in the computer. We would add synth pads. We would, we, we would add the color. Uh, to make it sound like the records that, that we grew up listening hmm. to. And if you didn't want that treatment to your band, you probably didn't want to work at our studio. But at the same time, we were also a studio that rented our studio out to other engineers. And we had a little staff. We had a manager, uh, Mitch Marlowe, who 
went on to manage bands and he plays in bands and does stuff. But, you know, we ran it as a commercial studio. But if you were going to work with Dave, Mike or I, it was usually because you wanted to have a little bit of what we were doing with other bands. How is survival for you then making a living in, 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 in a big city like Chicago? Well, I mean, by today's standards and not only like where we're at in the year 2018, but also where I was at in my life, it was pretty easy. We had low overhead as far as our rent. Uh, we had loans on some of the equipment. Uh, we really prided ourselves by, how, how do you say, uh, we would over deliver. In other words, we always wanted to make sure that what we charged for our rate and for the studio rental was a great deal. We didn't want anyone ever walking away feeling like, like they paid too much money to, to work with us. And we put every dime we made in, in back into the studio. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we all lived very modestly, you know, small apartments. We didn't need big apartments because we didn't have families. We were all basically either, we were either at the studio at our respective rehearsal spaces, rehearsing with our bands or at a bar, seeing a band or hanging out with friends. That's what our, or at some restaurant in the neighborhood. And it was the same neighborhood that all the studios were in. And we all ate at the same restaurants and no one drove nice cars. You know what I mean? That just wasn't, that's just not how it was done. It was very urban living. And uh, there wasn't a lot of thinking about uh, saving for the future. There wasn't a lot of thinking about the real estate markets. We were, we were all in, we were, 100% committed to, you know, rock and roll, indie rock. Yeah. And in our in our scene, you know what I mean? Our scene and and the scene in Chicago was fantastic. Yeah, there was an ecosystem in full swing. Yeah, and there was there was a lot of work. There was a I mean, I remember in that same time, you know, our, like our clients and our artists would buy ADATs and D88s and stuff. And, you know, we'd go over and maybe help them get a vocal sound. And in a way it was like, cool. Okay. Now like the really long, boring part of, of record making now I don't have to do, you know what I mean? Now I don't have to sit around and listen to a singer do 20 takes when he wants to spend hours on this one part of the song, which is cool, which you, you should be able to do when you make a record. But we never thought of it as like, okay, now we're going to lose like studio business. Yeah. I remember at one point, at one point I had this uh like late 90s I had like a Digio One system at home and I had uh uh like a decent you know, like an Avalon mic preamp and you know and and you know some some of my MIDI stuff and 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 I was recording all these people at home and I remember one day uh, I had Andrew Bird over doing demos, you know, and he was over with his violin in my apartment and, you know, and, and the studio manager called up saying, hey, man, what are you up to? And I'm like, oh, I got Andrew. Andrew was a you know regular. He played on a lot of people's records in Chicago and he was around the studio. And I'm like, I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm working with Andrew here at my house. He's like, well, uh, studio's empty today. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, I suppose we could have done this at the studio, but it just seemed easier to do it at my house. So in other words, there was a period of time when there was so much work going around that it never occurred to us that these like home rigs were actually cutting into the studio business because we were doing it ourselves. Dave had a rig at home, you know, uh, Mike had, you know, his own thing going on. Dave would be working on someone's record at home because oftentimes because we couldn't get into our own studios. Hmm. So, you know, but the point being was, is that there was a lot of work to go around. Yeah. You know. It was still in the era of, uh, you know, I mean, tape op existed and you know, certainly the Internet existed, but not everyone was trying to be, you know, an audio, you know, a recording engineer. So about 2003, 2004, you came to Los Angeles. I came in 2003. I, you know, I hit a point in my life where my wife and I, and we started our family and and I was just looking for the next thing. And I was looking to be in a city that had more work. You know, I think that the uh, the work was starting to dry out in Chicago. 
you know, people were, it was sort of like Groundhog Day. Like it wasn't, it wasn't expanding. If anything, it was diminishing and people were doing more stuff at home. So you had to keep your schedule full. If a big project, a big, bigger budget project would come around or if you'd be up for it and you didn't get it, there wasn't another one coming around the corner, Mm -hmm. you know? And I felt like I had recorded everyone in Chicago, which I mean, isn't true, but I felt that way. There was sort of like a mass exodus of people that once we hit our thirties, were like, if we're going to keep doing this, we have to get into a major market. Let me, let me ask you about that, about leaving Chicago. Okay. So, I mean, you spent a chunk of time there. You make a lot of friends, a lot of connections. You really cement yourself into a, a culture and in a way of life, leaving that for myself in that period of time, I lived in San Francisco for 12 years. And even though Oakland mm-hmm. was just across the Bay Bridge, my, I, my wife said, we need, to, we need to buy a house in, in Oakland. We need to leave mm-hmm. San Francisco. I went kicking and screaming. I can't even imagine leaving the Bay Area for a completely, well, a complete, leaving California for another state. So I can only imagine there was a little bit of reluctance on your part, but yet a desire fighting that so that you could expand and, and get and get better at what you're doing and have work there was no reluctance i have to say really i, I mean yeah i mean i mean well it, and it's funny it's uh i was ready for the next thing i wanted more exposure you know guys i know who are making records are like man we're paying our pro tools guy a thousand bucks a day you need to move out here you're twice as fast at pro tools oh, as these guys and okay. i'm like okay uh right well just got to talk the wife into it and uh and and when i i mean granted when one day i said like hey i think we got to do this and she said okay let's do it i was like oh my god like calling yeah, your bluff yeah, uh, Okay, so but, I mean, so maybe you did want to go out, but when it came time to shit or get off the pot, you definitely made the move and, and did it, even though it was a little scary. My mom and dad still live in Illinois. My sister lives in Illinois. And so, you know, it was like leaving my family and, 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 you know, the work was diminishing in Chicago, but the music community wasn't diminishing at all. You know, it was a strong, and to this day, as far as I can tell, is a strong music community. And I mean, when I moved out here is right when I became a parent. So I wasn't going to bars anymore. I wasn't like, you know, if whatever scene there is out in LA, I wasn't making that scene. In Chicago, you know, I would go to the hideout or go to Lounge Jacks or Empty Bottle down the street and, and you'd walk into the room and you'd know half the people in the room. You know what I mean? You knew all the bartenders and it was, it was great. It was and like it was cheers. Cool. And it was like cheers. Yeah. Norm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know if I was Norm, but I knew Norm. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that I was Norm, but, but I certainly, I, I knew a couple Norms knew a and, couple and was glad to hang out with them. You know what the best thing about leaving Chicago for you? What's that? You left the, the snow. Weather? <laughs> yeah. The weather, the cold weather and, and any time it snowed. I mean, what a drastic difference. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Th- this is somewhat controversial, but I have to say that I'm one of those people who miss the seasons changing and and is and and I'm not allowed as a as a LA resident to uh, you know, complain about the weather, but <laughs> when every day is a bright sunny hot day, it feels like you're in the twilight zone sometimes. Yeah. Like, for me, it's like, oh, yeah, look at this. Another bright, sunny day. Yeah. You're a heretic there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, the the winter would bum you out after a while, but I always appreciated the seasons changing. It, you know what? Honestly, to, to me, what I dislike more is the humidity of the summertime it was actually more comfortable for me personally. Yeah. You know, I will say Midwest change of the seasons, it is, it's, it is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you no, know, I was a little... I, I wish Chicago was, I mean, sh- there was a period of time in the 50s and 60s where Chicago was a major music market and 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 it 
makes me sad that uh, that it's not. And and New York isn't even anymore. You know what I mean? Everything's consolidated to uh, to L.A., especially for for what I do in particular. And and what I mean by that is I have some producing credits. And I'd, I I aspire to to become a producer engineer, but at this point in my career, I'm an engineer producer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In other words, I get hired oftentimes by producers to engineer records. But you know, I just I needed access to more producers. You know what I mean? To to to, to get more work to go around. As an engineer in Chicago, it, it was is kind of becoming just harder to work. You know what I mean? There's just fewer things going on. Ken Sluter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break for a bit and talk about our friends over at Audio-Technica. And I should have mentioned this at the NAM-specific episode I did a few weeks ago. And that is, is that AT won a tech award for the AT5047. That is, of course, uh, one of the mics that comes from the 50 series line which also includes the AT5040, which is a vocal mic, and the AT5045, an instrument mic. And the 5047 is kind of a hybrid of the two, equally at home capturing instruments or vocals, either one. All WCA alum have sung its praises. Uh, that would include Ross Hogarth, uh, Nico Bolas, and Al Schmidt. They're all big fans of the mic. So uh, I'll include a link in the show notes if you want to go check that out. That's the AT5047. And uh, yeah, check it out from Audio-Technica. Let's get back into it with Ken Sluter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You've worked with some great folks. Uh, you've assisted Andrew Sheps and uh, you've worked with Jim Scott, both who've been on on, on the show Tell me yeah. about working with uh, with Jim or with Andrew and, and any nuggets of information that you gleaned from them. I worked with Andrew. I assisted Andrew on the Weezer's Red Album. And that was about six six months out in Malibu in a theater, a theater that uh, we rented a bunch of equipment and, and worked in there and had the, there was no separate control room or live room. At that time, Andrew was more of... Um, he wasn't known as the mixer he is now. Not that he wasn't a great mixer or anything. He was, you know, he he did a lot of work for Rick Rubin, and this was a Rick Rubin produced project. You know, I, I think that the way a lot of those records are structured, from what I've seen, is that uh, you know Rick does a lot of the production with the band or with the main people in the band prior to the actual recording session, help helping pick out songs. You know, helping pick out like a point of view and a direction for the record. And then Andrew's sort of the day-to-day -day guy there who helped keep the band like in line with what the agreed vision was. But more than anything, what I learned from Andrew was uh, that the role of engineering, and to this day, I really believe that this is a big difference between engineering and producing, is... Uh, is you're there to accommodate the client, whatever the client wants to do, you know? And uh, if the client wants to record an acoustic guitar in a room that sounds terrible, then you make it happen. You make sure that, that you know how to get a headphone system into it and, and the microphones that you need to make it happen. And you do it all like as fast as can be, you know? Uh, uh, that was the first project that I was on where I had to keep very detailed notes because if the band, say for example, wanted to you know, change a chord in a song or change a whole section of a song and we needed to recall like a bass sound and a guitar sound or even a drum sound, even if it was from another studio, I had to go look up the sheets, find out which microphones were used, where they were placed, what, where the, you know, all the settings on the console and compressors were and make it so you could punch right into that track and it would sound exactly like it, you know, like it did before. And that's a big part of sort of working at that level is, uh, is making everything recallable, you know, and, and on that particular session, it was 
also like uh, basic tracks and overdubs. There, there was no like a bunch of tracking and then we stop and then we reset the whole room for overdubs. It was tracking and overdubs like, okay, on Monday we start working on this song and then we overdub on top of it until we're done. And then the next Monday we work on another song. So, you know, the implications of how you set up your headphone systems, how you set up everything to be able to seamlessly move between tracking and overdubbing has to all be sort of built into the setup from day one. And so, you know, we were regularly recording I think that we had literally like maybe like something like 56 inputs going into Pro Tools at 96K rolling all day long, rolling all day long. And it's like, hey, you know, we haven't used that Rhodes like for two days, but that track is in record. And then you realize when you're making a record at that level, it's not worth your time to go through and pick out which tracks are being played and which ones aren't. And what if somebody has an idea and they want to go over and play it on a Rhodes, but somebody else is like noodling on something that needs to be recorded? You just leave the machine and record. You know what I mean? So you'd be recording empty audio and stacking up hard drives. But, you know, that's what making a big budget record is is about, you know. And so, you know, you're working with this guy who's managing, you know, he's, he has a Pro Tools guy and he has an assistant. And then we had two techs, you know, two, uh, you know, the band had two techs to handle all the instruments. And so at that level, you know, when you talk about, you know, how I met Andrew or uh, Greg Fiddleman is another like these guys are crew, they, they were crew leaders. So, you know, you have to have uh, not only the diplomatic skills to deal with the band, but you have an engineering team behind you making everything, you know, work and and making everything happen. And on that particular setup, I think we had like two drum kits set up and mic'd at all times. You know, everyone's guitar rigs, you know, everyone in the band had multiple guitar amps, a piano, a B3, a bunch of synthesizers, an acoustic guitar set up. So it was about 56 inputs. And we had to tear that rig down and set it up like three times because the, uh, you know, the theater was booked for something else. So it was, oh, they have a show on this weekend. Okay, oh. well, Thursday night after the band's gone, you know, and the whole thing is, is that you would, you would tear down the entire studio, move it out of the way and have it all ready to go again on Monday morning. And the band would not know that anything had moved anything had changed you know so you're literally you know making sure that okay this is where this is the, the little jar where they like to keep their guitar picks that's going to be right back where it needed to be on monday you know and uh uh you know this headphone box here well you don't want to bury that that cable to that headphone box because we might need to move that headphone box like 20 feet away over to this other little area and so you know it's Everything that's involved with that, it's a, it was it was like nothing I had ever done before. And suddenly, like things I had read about started making sense to me, you know, and it's also one reason why, you know, for making like a certain type of rock record, you don't really want to veer away from the standard pieces of gear, you know, the uh, U87s, SM7s, 1176s, 1073s, APIs, because in part, you know, the band could be mixing in New York and then they might need to change that guitar part and you, and you get a phone call and you're faxing or you're, you know, uh, scanning like recall settings of you know an 87 into uh you know sm7 into a 1073 into an 1176 and then three months later you know if they want to change a lyric or whatever they can get that exact same setup going if you're going to go use some really obscure microphone into some really boutique preamp into some very boutique compressor that doesn't really work for that type type of record making that's interesting if that makes sense yeah, I mean the staples of of record making. I mean everything you named there: SM7, 87, uh, 1073s, and 1176s. Man, if it sounded good enough for Toys in the Attic, then then what what are we? You know, <laughs> I, I mean, and, and that's my sort of thing. Is is I think you know 
I appreciate that that your website isn't uh, gear centric because, in my opinion, uh, you know, an engineer should know what are the what are the best tools for the job, but you don't obsess over the tools. And and so, in my mind, I look at gear as like, is this above my line or isn't it? And not to bash anything, but like you know, like a Focusrite Octopre, no, not above my line. You know, that sounds like what it looks like. It it's but you know, API Neve or you know Neve based stuff. Okay, above my line. You know, does API sound? If I record a drum kit on an API console, is it going to sound different than a Neve? Yeah. Are they both going to sound good? Yeah. They're both going to be above my line. You know what I mean? And and honestly, for for myself, part of it is is what haven't I done for a while? What's going to keep me excited? Or you know, what's available? But I I'm one to kind of stick to the classics. But but there's also it's, a sense of recallability. Once again, we always talk about recalls with mixes, and that's why a lot of people like to mix in the box. So here we are talking about recallability for other people down the chain. Yeah, yeah. And if you go, you know, nutty and esoteric, then you're going to say, well, I use this. It's closest to this, but it's, you know, it gets goofy. Well, it can get goofy at the same time. Yeah. Well, what you can do is you can put yourself into a corner and then suddenly logistically you're stuck. You know what I'm saying? But I would say that when it kind of comes to vocals, yeah, for example, the variation in a human voice is so much wider than any microphone chain that you could ever use that unless you're, you know, using, uh, you know, if you recorded like an entire vocal with an SM7 and then you went to punch in a line on a 251, you might hear the difference. Yeah. But in general, if... Uh, if you record an entire vocal, say, for example, with a U47, and then uh, uh, one line is out of tune or, or uh, you know, the singer changes like one little lyric and, and all you have is like a roadie NT1 and an Apollo, man, just punch that in and work on your clip gain and, you know, tilt it in a certain direction and, and you're going to be fine. Because the human voice has more variation than any microphone, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. You worked with Jim Keltner, incredible, legendary drummer. Best stories in the world. (laughs) You know, Jim's not really known as a producer. So it wasn't like traditional, like things that an engineer would learn from a producer. But that's not to say I didn't learn a lot. I certainly learned a lot. And I learned a lot of stories. And I learned what he likes out of an engineer. One interesting thing with Jim is, and I didn't do a lot of the, uh, I did a lot of the overdubs, but I didn't do a lot of the tracking. But I've worked with Jim a a fair amount on other projects as well. And the one interesting thing with Jim is that when you listen to what he does, if you put a record on and you listen to what he does, it makes sense in the context of the record and the mix. But if you go solo up a kick drum or a snare, drum or any one of his individual things, you go, wow, uh, that's not the best kick drum sound I've ever heard in my life. And, and I've had times where we're going to do an overdub and I'm reaching into my bag and I hand him like a, my best shaker and he listens to it and he shakes it and he goes, ah, oh, too beautiful. I need something else. And then he'll tape some, you know, like tape something to it to make it sound clumsy and then then shake it, you know what I mean? Or tape five of them together and get this thing going, you know? And uh, I think his thing sometimes is that he'll say, like, you got to leave something for the engineer to do. Like, if you go in and your drums sound beautiful and they just sound finished and everything sounds perfect, then that's going to be a really perfect, really boring sounding record. Whereas if my drum, kick drum is a little dumpy sounding, then the engineer is going to have to have to you know eq it a little bit and if my snare drum is just a little bit bright he might need to eq that a little bit and that's how you make something that sounds like a record if i don't leave anything for the engineer to do then it's not going to sound the way you imagine you know and i can't speak on his behalf but that's sort of the vibe with him 
you know? And a lot of what Jim does is, uh, you know, say for example, we'll be working on a track and he'll lay down like four or five different percussion tracks. And then, then we go in and on Pro Tools and we just layer them and we, okay, in the chorus, use this one. Okay, now in the bridge, use you know, the second and third one and put those together. Uh, so in other words, he would layer things together to, to create textures and weaves and stuff in a way that I hadn't seen anyone. And then he'll do that with guitar players, you know, and fortunately on this project, it was, you know, I mean, the guitar player, we were, you know, okay, we have on track one, it's Ron Wood, track two is John Bryan. And then we had, uh, you know, Eric Clapton come in to play this part here and uh, Keith Richards on this track here. And now we're going to like create the weave, the weave that you hear like on Rolling Stones records, like Jim understands how that works, where you kind of can't tell who's playing what or a guitar part in the left channel starts and then it finishes off and it gets answered in the right channel because that's the interplay of Ron and Keith. I've never recorded those two guys at the same time. And part of that happens like during the tracking, but also part of it happens in the overdubs as well. You know, and a lot of what you hear that sounds like, you know, minimal stuff is actually layers upon layers of overdubs and then a lot of comping and muting and arranging of those overdubs. Interesting guy to, to be working with and such a nice guy. I, I mean, I've only met him once, but really nice guy. Yeah, he, he's he's a great guy. He's a really sweet guy. Uh, the first time I worked with him was on a Marshall Crenshaw record. And I can't remember what it was going on, but something was going on where uh, he wanted something in the headphones that I could not give him and it, without compromising everyone else's headphone mix or whatever. And so he said, OK, well, I guess I'll just suffer. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, okay, well, hold on. Let me see if I can go grab like a Mackie from the back room and create like a separate mix for you because I don't want anyone to suffer. But, you know, he's he's got a, he's got away with yeah. words. He's got away <laughs> with words, that's for sure. And he has, I mean, he, you know, here's the other thing I'll say about Jim as well that I learned. And I've learned this with a lot of that generation of musician uh, is that uh, a lot of these records that we listen to that seem very middle of the road mainstream require a, an insane amount of creativity to make them say for example you'll listen to like a, a dreamweaver which which jim brings up because he said at one point uh yeah that was uh, gary wright but he was telling me he said yeah that that track was done it was uh, you know gary wright on uh you know mini moog bass david foster playing like a selena and myself on drum kit and 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 that's the track. And it's like, wow, that sounds like a pretty modern, like, tracking date, you know? And then you listen to it, and it's a pretty great track. And it's really put together well. Now, we all listen to it, and it sounds kind of like a joke, like, a you know, Wayne's World or something. But if you listen to it, it's pretty well done. And Jim's groove and his drum fills on there are crazy. That's the other thing about Jim is that uh, sometimes it seems like he's playing a very straight beat. And it works like in the song. And then if you have a chance to solo it up, you hear that like his drum beat has like an entire percussion track going along with it. And it really grooves. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, McCartney's the same way where you listen to a bass line of a Beatles song and it sounds straight and proper. And then you go on YouTube and now they have the you know bass line isolated and you hear that he's boom, 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 you know, swinging. Just swinging like crazy. And when you add it all together, it creates this stew. And that's the one thing I don't think you get out of a lot of modern bands is this sort of chemistry of all these musicians who are who are playing what they need to play to serve the song, but adding just a little extra something to it that makes it sound finished and makes it sound like a record. And and he's he's amazing at that. Absolute you know? master. Yeah. 
for sure. Moving forward, I wanted to talk about uh, your work with Joe Ciccarelli. We both know Joe. He's a, he's a mutual friend of, of ours. I mean, for Joe to hand you the keys to say, I'd like you to do some mixing for me on some of the stuff that I work on. How did that come about? Well, and you know, you'd have to ask Joe. I don't know. I don't. I mean, I know how, how it came about like on a timeline, but as far as why it came about, uh, I worked with them in the late 90s. Dave Trumpio had a band that Mike and I both you know played in at various points. And uh, we did a record with Joe. The record never came out, but we established a relationship and we stayed in touch when I moved to LA. But it was mostly just staying in touch for a long time. And then uh, he had produced a couple songs for this band called Divine Fits. It's Britt Daniel from Spoon with uh, Dan Bachner from Wolf Parade and... Uh, and they did a really cool record with Nick Lanay that's really good. And and I love Spoon and I love Britt Daniel. And uh, I had met Britt recently. Britt had played bass on uh, Jason Narducci, who plays with uh, Super Chunk now, was doing a solo record. And he's an old buddy of mine from Chicago. And he, he also plays with Bob Mould's band. And he contacted me about cutting a, uh, an album with Britt Daniel on bass and John Worcester on drums. And so we spent a week in L.A. at Sound Factory doing that. And, uh, and it was funny because... You know, I, I mean, I mean, at this point, I'd worked with a lot of you know people, but I was a big fan of Brits, and uh, and I really liked what he did. And the first time we were like in the control room doing overdubs, he's like, uh, "So I saw you had, uh, is are you, you driving that Volkswagen Tiguan?" Yeah, and he's like, "What do you think of it?" And I was like, "Okay, so this." <laughs> It's like, you know, working class rock star. You know what I mean? He's 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 thinking about buying a Volkswagen. Like, all right, this is my kind of guy, <laughs> you know. But we got along and we stayed in touch. And then Joe had produced a couple songs for for them and but wasn't available to mix it. And so Britt called me to mix them. So I went and mixed them. And I think Joe thought they turned out well. And then Joe was mixing a record. He had produced a record for Morrissey. And suddenly the mixing deadline, like, tomorrow you know we need this record finished and in the can right away so we literally had me and like three other mixers like we had four control rooms going with everyone mixing and that turned out well and then i think just you know he's really focused on production i think that he would probably uh prefer to you know mix himself but i don't think he has the time i don't think a lot of the projects have the budget to go into sunset sound and mix in the way that he likes to mix and so just over time he he just started, you know, sending me records and projects to mix. And it's been going on like four years now. It's a, it's a fair amount of what I do. It's a fair amount of my, my, my schedule. It's funny because a record that he produces, you know, he's always thinking in context of the mix as he makes it, you know, as we all should do. So when I get the Pro Tools session, I open it up between that and the rough mix. I, f I feel like I have an idea of what he's going for and I just need to finish it. I just need to finish it and put some put some sparkle on it and, 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 you know, ride some faders and create some, you know, make sure that the energy stays the same. It's funny because, you know, getting good sounds and getting stuff EQ'd and compressed right is only really the beginning. It's really about uh, getting the energy to a certain point and then maintaining it and making sure that like the chorus doesn't sound that, that the song just keeps getting more exciting as you yeah. go on. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of sleight of hand to do that. A lot of like, well, how can we make this thing seem louder when all the meters are pinned? And then you learn about, you know, parallel compression, riding parallel compression, you know, uh, making verses a little bit quieter so the choruses get bigger and all that kind of stuff. So that's more 
you know, when I send him a mix or when we sit and work on a mix together, the notes are usually like, you know, how can we make this thing more exciting? It's not about, I mean, every now and then it'll be like, hey, you know, this mix sounds dull or this mix is too bright or this mix might need just a little bit more low end. But in general, those things are usually sorted out. You know, the nice thing is there's not a lot of repair work with what he's doing and there's not a lot of, uh, uh, oh, I have no idea what they were going for when they were making, you know, sometimes you get a stuff in the mix and you really have no idea what they were going for with Joe. You know, the, the drum tracks are usually under 12 tracks. So there's not a lot of like, well, you know, not a lot of decisions are made till the end. And so, you know, usually by the time we get into mixing, his comments are more big picture. It's almost like he's become like the A&R guy who's more thinking about the record as a whole. He's not asking me what EQ I'm using on the kick drum or even what EQ I'm using on the stereo right. bus. You know, at that point, he's look, taking more of an executive approach to it. And because of the detail in Joe's tracking, uh, he's kind of set you up for success because, as you said, he he tracks like he's going to like he's mixing it at the at the same time. All this, yeah. a lot of decisions are being made right on the spot and blended and and crafted, so that when you open it, as you say, you kind of already know where he's going. Even when I get something just from a band directly, you know. I don't push all the faders down and start over. I don't work that way anymore. I, you know, and I don't usually, I don't usually change the panning unless I strongly disagree with it. You know, in other words, I go, okay, this is what the band had in mind. So I'm going to figure out a way to, you know, honor the, the, the blend they have. You know, if somebody sends me a track and it has 14 stereo guitars on it with all this, with all these faders, I'm not going to zero all those faders out. I'm going to route them all to like one stereo fader and I'm going to ride the guitars. And then if I feel like I'm not hearing a certain part, then I'll go and I'll solo up, figure out which part that is and deal with that. But I'm not going to go and solo up every guitar and go looking for problems. Right. It's like, it's like Jim Scott says, if we want to find problems, we can find problems in the first bar of any song you've ever heard in your life. Sure. You know? And, uh, and it's funny because, you know, Joe and Jim, as I've mentioned to anyone who's listened to anything I've said in public, like th- those two guys are are two of my biggest mentors and they have very... Very different styles of record making, but the one thing that they both have is the, you know, committing early on and not doing a million tracks, you know, getting your drums, blending your drums and your guitar mics. You know, if you have two or three mics on a guitar and you strike a balance, put that onto one track. Don't put it onto three tracks. Yeah. Don't don't create extra work for yourself. Do the work right on the spot. Well, and and you know what? I even go as far as to say is like the wrong decision is a better decision than no decision. (laughs) Like, because a wrong decision, at least somebody committed to something. You know what I mean? Even if it was the wrong decision, I can work with the wrong decision quicker and easier than I can work with indecision. Tell me about, um, you're a big in-the-box guy, right? Yeah, over the last few years, I've certainly, you know, I've I've just become like about the path of least resistance. Yeah. And that's in the box now, so, for sure. So, uh, do you work off templates at all? Absolutely. I have... Uh, I have a few templates. What I typically do is I open, you know, if I get something to mix that I didn't work on and I'm getting it for the first time, I usually open up that session, look around and see what's up and rename, relabel some things, reorganize some things. And then I have a big mixing template that involves a lot of cascade routing and, uh, uh, you know, plugins that might be inactive but are ready to go. I It really slows me down to go and 
go through like pop-up menus and scrolling around looking for the plugins I want to use. I just have, say for example, like my kick sub has the four EQs that I'm going to use on a kick drum. They're not all like engaged, ready to go, but they're all inactive and I can, you know, click them on very, very quickly and very easily. The two things that really make in-the-box mixing work really well for me is having a template to work off of and having sure your, your template's can accommodate any style of music and any type of, you know, I have in, in my template for mixing rock music, if there's a string section in there, I have a bus ready for that to go with my settings that I like. It's custom work. You know, every now and then somebody goes, oh, could you just run my tracks through your template? And it's like, it really doesn't work that way. It's going to sound terrible. And a big reason why is because you have to know how to trim your mix. I mean, you have to know how to trim your mix on an analog console as well, but in a Pro Tools environment, you really got to know how to trim your mix and where to trim your mix. So for example, in my template, once I get everything ready to go and I get everything cleaned up, I create a group of all my individual tracks and those are assigned to a VCA that's called track trim. And then I have another VCA called sub trim, which is trimming after you know, all the stuff floats, floats into subs, and then those have a trim. And depending on which one you're, you're trimming your mixes, it radically affects how your mix is going to sound. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, plugins, you want to hit them all at the sweet spot. Yeah. You know what I mean? All these plugins have a sweet spot where they sound good. Which you can also do with clip gain, of course. Yeah, well, and you also have to understand that, for example, turning your tracks down and clip gain is different than turning your fader down. Because now you're turning your gain down prior to the plugins as opposed to after the plugins. It's a different sound. And clip gain is awesome, and I use it regularly. You know what I mean? And I can't believe it took till Pro Tools 10 to, to get it. Because I was using Audio Suite. Like, wow, this track is printed way, yeah. way too hot. But in general, what I would say is... is that most people I know who 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 go on and on about like these summing boxes, you know, oh, you know, when I run my mix through the summing boxes, it just sounds so much bigger and beefier and wider and all that stuff. And, it, and typically, what it is, and it, I mean, and some people do it, and that's what works for them. But in general, those are the people who don't understand how to trim a mix. And so what they're doing is they're taking the energy of 40 tracks of audio and they're splitting it across 16 stereo outputs. Of course, it's going to sound better because, you know, what you're doing is you're creating a bottleneck out to outputs of Pro Tools that now you've suddenly like you have a traffic jam and now you have 16 more lanes to go. Of course, that's going to sound better, yeah. you know, or you could just learn how to trim your mix. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Interesting. The other thing I'm going to say about 100% in the box mixing is I also had the the realization that as plugins were getting better, particularly like UA plugins, I would say, and, and, and other plugins as well, but just in general, as plugins started getting better, I started noticing that using analog inserts and using like, like I used to have a smart C2 compressor. And what I noticed is that I would always use like analog inserts for like the mix, overall mix for like the kick and snare and the lead vocal. But what would happen is, is if you take a, if you take a track and you run it out of your computer and then back into your computer, like through the, through the ring of fire, I always think of it as like, you know, through the converters, it's going to come back sounding smaller. And so whatever you're going to do outside of the computer has to be worth it to make it and has to make up for the fact that it's just going to sound smaller. Yeah. Like if you just took a patch cable and just patched like your kick drum and just patched it out of your converter and then back into it again, what you're going to get is a smaller version of the same sound. So so you have to make sure that whatever you're doing outside of the box is 
is going to make up for that. And then as plugins started getting better, I just started saying, you know, I just started realizing this wasn't worth it, that I'm actually getting a better result by just using better sounding plugins. And so that's that's when it went to all in the box for me, like 100% in the box. Yeah. As In my mind, it sounds better to me than than running stuff through analog inserts. So that's that. Here, here. Um, here, here. So um, you have a family, you have, a, you have two kids or three kids? That I know of? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, no, I have uh, a 12 and a 14 year old, 12 and uh, a 12 year old girl and a 14 year old boy. Okay. Okay. What are the challenges uh, that you and your wife have faced over the years of you trying to make this work? Obviously, you know, there's a lot of pressure, client pressure, but there's also a lot of family pressure. Sure. So how have you managed to keep everybody happy for the most part. Well, I don't know if that's... <laughs> that's why I say for the most part. I don't think anybody's 100% happy. I don't think anyone's happy. No, that's not true. The work-life balance is, um, is, is something that... You know, we're always working on, you know, trying to set boundaries is tricky. It's tough. One year I'll have so much work that I feel like I can really tell people like, hey, I'm not available on Saturday. Don't don't call me on Saturday. But then if you have three weeks where you're not working, suddenly you're like, hey, call me on Saturday. Call me on Saturday. You know what I mean? And my wife has a career as well. She's a project manager and she works freelance as well. So it would be a lot easier if one of us was like the breadwinner, but we both kind of are about 50 50 mm -hmm. you know what i mean so 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 one of our careers is not more important than the other we need both to to live our lifestyle uh, our kids are a little bit older, so it's getting a little easier you know they don't need to be bathed anymore <laughs> Thank God. you know we we've been lucky we've had one babysitter the entire kids lives you know mm -hmm. who's become a friend of our families and is more than a babysitter she's our friend Jesus, and, you know, can, and, can you rec i mean i wish i lived there i would say can we borrow your babysitter we have the worst luck with babysitters it's tough. Well, and we don't have any family here at all. Yeah. So, so, so we don't have any grandparents or aunts and uncles. So that's been a challenge. Our friends at our kids school who, you know, the adults and all the parents are a tight knit group of people that I can text saying like, Hey, can you pick up the kids? You know, I'm running late from work. Can you pick up the kids or can they be at your house? And I'll swing by and pick them up. And, you know, uh, the nice thing about our little community of parent friends is that for the first time in my adult life, I have a group of friends that that are not in show business at all. You know, they have like actual like adult jobs. Like it's refreshing for me to not have every social event turn into like a networking thing because I'll go there easily. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm bad about it almost, you know? So uh, it's, that helps, you know, but, but just having, having like a, a Whatever kind of community you can carve out for yourself helps quite a bit. Having a good babysitter helps, you know, and even to this day, she can help pick up the kids here and there. I will say that I spend I spend less time in a studio with a band than I used to. Just, it's just I'm slightly, I mean, I'm hoping and I'm figuring that I'll go through another phase where where that will be what I'm spending a lot of time because I do love that. But at the moment, it feels like I'm sort of aging out of it a little bit. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, you know, I do more mixing and more mixing as you do it on your own and you send emails to people and you get email notes. So, you know, I can be working on a mix and then when it's time to pick up the kids from school, I'll just pause what I'm doing, go get the kids, come home, make dinner, get them, you know, whatever they need to have happen and then and then uh you know go back to my mix or maybe by that time i get an email with a mix revision i go make it send the revision off i do a lot of work these days with a uh this guy named brian reitzel who's a film composer and uh and we work a lot on uh film scores and soundtracks and he keeps very civilized hours you know it's rare that i'm working past seven o'clock with him so i can usually be home in time maybe not in time to make dinner but eat some dinner and you know 
talk with my kids before they go to bed a little bit and that helps. And when I'm not on a project, I'm full on, you know, drive, I drive the kids to school every morning. And for us, we're more about making breakfast and making sure our kids have a healthy breakfast because the day can get away from you. And so sometimes you don't know like what's going to happen. You know, you make dinner plans and suddenly things are running behind and, uh, and you're swinging by in and out happens, you know what I mean? But I know that if I gave my kids some vegetables in the morning, at least they had some vegetables and protein, you know? Yeah. I always feel super guilty when I get to the point of the evening where I've been working and burying my head in what I'm doing. My wife just gets home from her job. And then we're like, what are we doing for dinner? And we look at each other like, I thought you had dinner. Now I thought you had dinner. And we're like, oh, yeah. should we just go for pasta? And the kids are like, fine, we'll have pasta. Oh, see, our kids love pasta. They, you know, we try to keep them off the carbs as much as we can. I know. But it's tough because the carbs are easy to make, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you had your interview with Tucker Martin and, you know, Dave Barbie. I, who I know a little bit over the years. I've had a couple of conversations with him. And, you know, some of these guys, if you're working in a in Athens, Georgia or Portland or you're, you know, you're working and you're a producer and you're the guy managing the, the project – you can sort of say, I need to be done by this time because I need to go have dinner with my family and, you know, and I'm going to keep reasonable hours. Unfortunately, you know, in LA, if you're on a project and you're working in a proper studio, it's a 12 hour block. The studio rents the studio for 12 hour blocks. So you're going to be there for 12 hours. So, you know, if I'm on a project where it's a real session with clients recording a rock band, that's when things get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough too if you've got to like pause in the middle of a, a of a project and and quickly orchestrate you know uh, the babysitter the dinner okay you know uh, I'll get the babysitter you call the food in we'll have pizza delivered you know well you have to juggle that shit sometimes and it's really a, yeah. a, a stressful time because you want to keep the client happy and you're trying to be very quick so you get back into the client but you're also trying to make sure your family's taken care of and that is just like that's i think that's why you know i'm we're, we're similar age i'm 48 you know i'm at this point where i'm like i'd just rather stay home and mix all day because i can stop and go yeah. do what I need to do. Well, you know, for me, I like the balance. You know what I mean? In other words, if I'm working and I'm mixing a bunch of projects in a row, it's nice. But I got to say, you know, I, I like a good, stressful, expensive recording session. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, if and if I did that all the time and I used to do that all the time, you know, you get burnt out on it, you know. But, you know, I like one or two of those a year kind of keeps me, you know, keep, keeps the chops up. And keeps you engaged. But yeah, I spend I, I spend less time with young rock bands. Being a freelancer, I mean, we all know it's feast or famine. And, you know, you get a chunk of dough, you tend to hold on to it, I guess, because you don't know when the next gig's coming. You don't know when your next gig's coming. Yeah, you have to. I mean, that's certainly a big part of it is that you have to, uh, you have to have, you know, be really aware of what your monthly nut is, what your budget is, how much money you need to make a, a month, you know, to, to cover that. Open up an IRA account and 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 just put put as much money as you can in every month. Don't buy any gear that you don't need. You know, when I moved to LA, I realized, and this is slowly changing. It's not quite the way it was when I first moved here. But in general, for example, when I bought my first HD system when I moved to LA, I didn't buy a twenty four in and out 
HD system because I realized I only need one interface because 80% of the time I'm just doing overdubs or mixing. And if I need more interfaces on my rig, I just go rent more interfaces. You know, I don't need to own a U47 microphone when I can go rent one. You know, if, if, if I need a U47 outside of a recording studio, meaning like at an overdub space 10 days a year, it doesn't make sense to have that thing sitting in, in storage for 355 days a year. That's not money well spent. No. You know what I mean? So don't buy any gear that you don't need. For me, I'll spend money on plugins. If I'm an engineer on a session and, and we run a studio with all the gear that you would ever need, and suddenly I have a, a, a mini Moog sounding virtual synth that I can play back off my laptop, that, that's a bonus. I'm not expected to bring a mini Moog to a recording session as the engineer. Or if uh, if I have some really cool tubular bell samples that I can just pull up on my laptop and, and grab a MIDI controller and play those in, that's adding value to what, I, that's not a part of the toolkit that I'm to bring to a session. Yeah. You know, I mean, ultimately, I would love it if I didn't own any equipment. I would love to own no equipment <laughs> at all. Have it all be something that, because you have to take care of it all. Even 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 with your with your computer system, you have to update it. Yeah. All the time. It's, you know, constantly updating your software to keep, you know, to keep it rolling. Like at this point in my life, it's like I'll give my time to my career, but no more money. If, if I need something, I'm going to sell something. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, I don't want to put more money into it. I, I'd rather, I'd rather like open a Subway franchise. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's what I'd rather do with my extra money. <laughs> at least you have a place to go eat lunch. Exactly. <laughs> at least, you know, five, for five bucks. <laughs> networking. Do you put a lot of effort into networking? Not enough. I, I could do a lot more. You know, I could do a lot more picking up the phone as opposed to like, you know, clicking like on Facebook to some, you know, in other words, it's a big part of what we do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I was in Chicago, one thing I will say is that, uh, part of, you know, uh, me and my studio partners, we played in bands. So we were always out playing with other bands, seeing other bands, playing in bands and, you know, uh, sitting in with bands and doing that. And that was my version of networking if, if for that era of my career out here. I don't really go out to see bands very often. Uh, you know, I'll try to make it to NAM and AES. And if there's like a cool studio party, I, I, I try to go. But uh, but I'm not the guy who's going to, you know, I would like to pop my head in and visit people on recording sessions and go out for coffee more often. But there's just not a lot of time to do that. Yeah. You know, I feel like, you know, I mean, my kids are growing up so fast that I feel like it's just right around the corner where I'll suddenly be an empty nester and I'll ha- I'll be... and and I'll be at every industry function that's happening in town. I tell you, from my own perspective, I know I could do better in this arena of, of networking with artists. And I think that in retrospect, the time I spend getting into stupid political arguments on Facebook with old high school friends, I could actually put that time into hunting down new emerging artists, reaching out, making myself known in that department. Oh, for sure. Well, it not only drains your time, but it drains your energy as well. You know what I mean? That's and and, and I've never seen anyone like turn someone's political be- belief around. No, you know what I'm saying? So, no, so it's, it's like you know, we all have family members that that are on the opposite spectrum, and you just kind of go, okay, we're just not going to talk about that. You know, I talked you know? I talked to Billy Decker, who's a mix engineer in Nashville, works on a lot of big country hits, and he said, you know, Facebook's great for bragging on yourself and bragging on your kids, and there's something about that. I really think that so. Social media can really suck our time away. Yeah. 
when we get pulled yeah, in absolutely. too deep. So well, and also like you watch somebody else, you know, who's you know, I'll, I'll see someone like you know posting pictures of their session at East West Studio Two, and I'm like, that's my room. Get get out of my room. You know what I mean? That's 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 my room. Why am why am I not there today? Are you are you friends with <laughs> Daryl Thorpe on Facebook? Yeah, I've never met him, but but yeah, I mean, we have so many mutual friends that like I think he kept coming up as someone to friend, and finally I'm just like. All right. Yeah, yeah. He always posts pictures of his feet up on the console. Yeah. It was just sort of like, you know, marking his territory, <laughs> right? He might as well, like, just pee on the console a little bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, it's been great talking to you. Um, thanks thanks a bunch for taking the time, and uh, real pleasure to yeah, have th- you on. Th- thanks for having me. I-, I like what you do. I like your angle on these podcasts. It's it's cool. Thank you. It's good. Thank you. I, I like it too. I like the fact that I I can get guys like you on answering questions and telling their stories. So it's it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Anytime. Anytime. And and next time you're in town, let's uh, go for coffee or a beer or, or a coffee or beer. Or a coffee beer. <laughs> yeah. Or a coffee and a shot. <laughs> there oh, you go. Oh my God. All right. Thanks, man. Take care, Matt. Ken Sluter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Another interview down, a good one at that. Hey, before we sign off, I want to make sure and remind you to pay a visit to our sponsors who help make our show possible. That's uh, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Focal Monitors, and Lawton Audio. We are out of time, so of course we want to thank everybody. And we'd like to start with our friend who uh, provides us with our music, and that is Mr. Cliff Truesdale, the man behind the voice. That would be Chuck Smith. And the man who always helps us with anything we need help with, that would be Cole Williams. So... And I want to thank you for listening. Appreciate it. And as I always like to say before we sign off, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.